Thanksgiving week is full of memory, isn't it? For me, I'm privileged to say that those are so many happy and whole memories from my past. There's the sense memories of the favorite tastes or the smells of the kitchens of my childhood. I think about loved ones. I think about family. I find myself thinking about my grandparents especially from those annual boyhood Thanksgiving Thanksgivings in my parents' hometown of Palatka in North Florida. We would drive there the three hours every Thanksgiving morning. It was lunch at Papa and Nana's, and then it was dinner over the river at Grandma and Grandpa's house. And I was blessed to know all of my four grandparents into adulthood up until 2017 when my last living grandparent, Charles Proctor, died at age 90. Some of you have heard me talk about Papa, as we called him. I remember when he died how the family went through the long process that many of you know all too well. Gathering up the belongings, preparing for an estate sale, deciding what to keep, what to give, what a grandchild might want to hang on to. My mother and her three sisters excavating these generations of memories and treasures. And in the process, amidst the piles, they came across this box full of letters that were dated 1945 and 1944, and they were sent home by U.S. Navy Petty Officer 3rd Class Charles Franklin Proctor. My grandfather was 18 and 19 years old, and he was stationed at Pearl Harbor those last years of the war. He was a signalman who was also training to drive a landing craft for the supposed invasion of Japan. And after the war ended, he spent another six months in San Francisco. And over the course of these three years, he wrote regular letters to his parents, which his daughters were holding in the weeks following his death. They were transported through time and space. They were reading their young father's handwriting, and they were calling out to one another as they read something funny or moving, or isn't that just like Dad? Can't you hear him saying that? Like the line assuring his parents that he wasn't falling in with the post-war party crowd. You don't have to worry about me at the parties. I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't gamble, and I don't plan on it, Papa said. He was fun in other ways. (laughs) Or there was the letter that my mother read. This one was written in the summer of 1945, just a few months before he'd come home. It was a fairly straightforward letter. He checked on things at home. I hope all is well there. He wanted to make sure his sister had a happy birthday. I hope Mary Ethel got the card I sent. And then, just before the letter ended, there were these words that especially caught my mother's eye. And I hope you received the $20 that I sent for my offering to the church. From our passage today, the one who sows generously will reap abundantly. My grandfather was a farmer by trade, so he understood this better than most, I suppose. He knew how a seed containing so much life and possibility, when it is released, when it is hidden in the earth, it can spring forth with abundant blessings beyond our imagining, becoming more than we could ever expect it to be. Now the Apostle Paul was a tent maker by trade, not a farmer. But he draws on agricultural imagery throughout this passage in 2 
Corinthians as he urges the Christians in Corinth to give to a collection for the churches in Jerusalem whose needs were acute and whose situation was urgent. People who were poor and needy. And the result is two chapters, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, that form one of the most important scriptural teachings on the practices of generosity, which is so much more than releasing your money, but much more a way of opening up your life in response to the grace of God that has been so freely released and shared with you. And this was a definitive feature of those early Christians whom Acts describes with glad and generous hearts as we've remembered these weeks. We've explored that theme and we began with the question of what we give and then last week we explored how we give, remembering the biblical practice of tithing and Paul's teaching that our giving should be two things. Above all, should be deliberate and should be cheerful. Deliberately and cheerfully giving through the ministries of our church. And today we conclude this stewardship emphasis by asking of this passage, what happens when we give? What grows forth from what we plant into this earth? It's an important question because we can't always see it. Like the farmer who releases the seed, we can prepare, we can plan faithfully, we can calculate as informed a decision as we can, but in releasing, we give that gift over to something other and larger than ourselves. In grasping, we can control it, but in releasing, we give ourselves, whether a seed or an offering or another aspect of our lives, over to trust and to a process of grace that we can rarely see. And this happens with our offerings. As we consider what happens when we give, there are some answers that are clear to our eyes, but there are others that are almost buried and less clear and visible. Reverend John Buchanan was for many years the pastor of Chicago's historic Fourth Presbyterian Church. And one year, an area business journal, Crane's Chicago Business, wanted to do a fall feature on him and several other clergy and how they deal with the somewhat sensitive matter of giving and financial stewardship in their churches. And so Buchanan gave an interview, and then Cranes also wanted a picture. And the photographer came in and was assessing the best spot from where to take this photo. Where was the light, so, where was the light good? Where was the backdrop emblematic? And so he decided to haul the equipment up into the east balcony for a classic view of the expanse and the gorgeous west window that is this architectural hallmark of that church and in that area of Chicago. It resulted in the cover photo for Cranes, and it depicted the grandeur of the church with its majestic worship space, this statement about what has grown from gifts of those faithful members over the years. But Buchanan reflected on this, And he was realizing what was just outside the frame of that shot, for he recalled that as he stood in the balcony, posing for the shot in the glimmer of the stained glass, in that same light just below him, on the sanctuary floor, there were about 15 people, most of them without housing, including one man stretched out on a pew, snoring in his rest. They were taking shelter on a cold day. They were coming to a place where they were welcome, not harassed, where they find food, a warm coat, a restroom, a hot shower, a place to rest and sleep. That is, if even for a moment, a place that is like a home for them. And how are we framing our identity as a congregation? What are we focusing on? What do we see? What is growing from the ministries of our church and the gifts that we give? Yes, it's grand buildings and moving worship. And those are not things to be overlooked. But what else is beneath the surface? Perhaps not as easily captured outside our most natural gaze or our range of view. What happens, in other words, when we give? 
In the early churches to which Paul is writing, the answer to that question, what happens when we give, is something like transformation, something even like resurrection. New life springing up through the gifts of the followers of Christ, transformed by the grace of God. This is what we hear about in Acts 2. All who believed were together. They had things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods. They would distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, as they spent time together and they broke bread at home and they were together in the temple and they ate their food with glad and generous hearts, they praised God. They had the goodwill of the people and God was adding to their number daily those whose lives were being saved. That's what happened when they gave. We can hear it in the words of Jesus Himself in John 10, I came that they may have life and that they may have it in abundance. More than survival, you see. More than the day today. When our lives are characterized by the generosity of God, we begin to truly live with abundance, Corinthians says. Whoever sows generously will reap abundantly. And then continuing in verse 8, for God is able to provide you with every blessing in abundance. So that by always having enough of everything, you may then share abundantly in every good work. It seems that when we sow generously, when we give of ourselves and our resources in a manner that is deliberate without hesitation, that is cheerful, ordering our life according to grace and commitment to Christ, we practice sharing together in community the same grace and blessing that God so generously releases and shares with us. And in so doing, Paul says that abundance springs forth. Abundance abounds. We find what we would otherwise miss if we lived lives that were more sheltered, more grasping. That in a world that tells us at every turn to claim what is ours, to store up the best things, to possess and preserve the good gifts of God in our lives, that when we open our lives, we come to see that the gifts of God, they are meant to be shared together. And when we do this, we find a true miracle that there is enough. That the best gifts in this life are not scarce. They are in fact abundant. And it happens when we give in this church. On the surface, within the frame, we see the obvious things to which we give. About a $2 million budget all told. Basic financial needs. Obvious expenses that allow us to maintain the life that we share as a church and that we have shared together for generations. But what about another view of what's just beyond our gaze? What about the view of our treasurer, George Scott, our assistant treasurer, Marietta Noel, who signed the checks around here? And when they do that, stacked on the table are things that you'd expect to see. There are the checks that enable us to have a physical place in which to gather and worship and fellowship and grow and from which we go out to serve. There are the checks that provide ministers and staff to journey with us through every season of life. But then there are checks that allow for the education and formation of a hundred children of our community who are part of our weekday school. There are the checks that purchase the food for a fellowship meal where we share together around the table so much more than food itself. There are checks for the accoutrements for another bereavement gathering surrounding a family in their time of grief and need. There are checks to go out to buy meals for people who are hungry or to support shelter for those who are living outside during these colder months, especially. There are checks that support the ministry of missionaries throughout the world who are seeking to live out the beloved community of Christ in a way that is consistent with the most cherished beliefs and deeply held values of our congregation. 
There's a check here to support someone who needs some assistance to make their rent this month. There's a check there for the just over $100 pulled together by our children and given to the transformative humanitarian ministry of Africa Exchange. There's one there to help another person move from poverty to sustainability through our Christian Restoration Fund. There's a check that supports our community youth choir in Spiro that is growing dramatically as a safe and creative space for area young people. There's checks that maintain a building where not only we gather as a congregation, but where so many increasing community partners are finding space to gather here. Ordinary gifts that are shared generously, that are collected together, and that are transformed somehow to share the abundant grace of God. Shared for mercy, for justice, for peace, for community, for conciliation, and for a kingdom known on earth as it is in heaven. And if you give to the ministry of God through First Baptist, then you understand that when George and Marietta sign all of those checks, it's as if you are signing them too. Because you are giving to something that is larger than yourself. You are knitting yourself together with a community ethic that says together we can dispense the gifts of God in ways that we could never be able to see alone. You are acknowledging with each gift that God gives us to each other. Like those first Christians in Acts. The blessings of God are not meant to be hoarded, protected, or possessed alone. Rather, the blessings, gifts, and graces of our God, they come to the fullness of transformative life when they are shared. And that is part of what we ask in this season. That's part of what we ask today. It is true that not everyone wants to give to our church, to a church like ours, that is to say. To a church that holds the convictions that we hold, that stands for the principles that we stand for. Not everyone wants to give to this. But if you do, give deliberately, give cheerfully. Offer those gifts, but also there's more that we are considering. Offer your gifts in service as well. There are so many talents represented in the life of this congregation Will you offer those to this church? Will you find your life in serving others? Or offer your gifts in membership if you have not. Knowing that your voice, your gifts, your particular identity, it helps us. It makes us more than we are without you. And it shapes who we have yet to become and are still called to be. Or will you give a legacy gift? That's another offering to us to consider on this card. Something that stretches beyond you and beyond your chronological existence. This week, many of you know, has been a transformative moment for our church as for the very first time, solar panels have been installed here at First Baptist. And when the key is turned next week, roughly 10% of our energy at First Baptist Greensboro will be clean energy, will be powered by solar This is a gift to our community collectively and it is a step toward greater environmental stewardship and care for our earth and it is a witness, a visible evidence of the kind of church we hope to be and it is a gift that will continue to impact us in material ways. We'll save 10% of energy costs in perpetuity and also allow for a rebate that enabled us to cover the cost of a new roof on the children's wing on which those panels sit and I hope you will see them if you have not already today. And of course, this was made possible 
by a deliberate and cheerful and generous gift of church members who said, we want to impact the life and ministry of this church for years to come. We want to demonstrate to others how giving of yourself can stretch into the future. We want our lives to be characterized by this kind of generosity because an abundant life is a generous life. An abundant life is a shared life. An abundant life is one that overflows and overflows and doesn't stop. And when we give, Paul says, God is able to provide us with every blessing in this kind of abundance. And what is sown generously is then reaped abundantly. And I guess Paul uses these words and these images because he knows too that farmers understand this better than most. Perhaps you've come across the work of Jason Brown, who is a farmer here in North Carolina who until 2012 was a center on the offensive line with the St. Louis Rams of the NFL. And he left a five-year, $37 million contract in 2012 to become a farmer in the community of Lewisburg here in our state. Brown's passion was to learn to farm with the purpose of donating the food to area pantries. And he calls his farms First Fruits Farms. And he's drawing on the biblical language of tithing as he literally gives the first fruits of every harvest to those that are in need. And I've never felt more successful in my life, Brown says. Not in people's eyes, but in God's eyes. The head of the local food pantry says of Brown, We've never seen this before. It is so unusual for a grower to grow a crop only for the purpose of giving it away. But this is not surprising to Jason Brown. When I think about a life of greatness, he says, I think about a life of service. He thinks about a life of generosity. And you can hear in it echoes of the one who said, the greatest among you will be your servant. The one who said if you want to find your life, then you have to give it away and find it returning to you as something that is new and reborn. The one who in his parables told about farmers that opened up their hands and scattered abundantly to find growing more than they could ever have imagined, mimicking the God who opens God's hands and extends God's arms, casting to the wind seeds of love that settle into every crack and cranny of our world. The one who, in one parable, talked about how even the tiniest of seeds, when it is shared generously, when it is released, when it is planted and buried in the earth beyond our seeing, can grow into a tree that is great enough for all of the birds of the air, all of the people of the earth to come, to find rest, to find sleep, to find home. And I guess farmers understand this. How a seed containing so much life, so much possibility, when it is released, when it is hidden and buried, it can spring forth with abundant blessings, becoming more than you could ever imagine it to be. And perhaps that's why my grandfather seemed to understand it so well. Giving faithfully to the ministry of God through the life of his church in Palatka, Florida. A church where not long after he was home from the war, he would walk down the aisle hand in hand with his bride, Madeline, beginning a partnership and covenant there of more than 60 years. Together they raised four daughters who were dedicated as babies in that church, who grew into faith there, who sang in the choirs, who were baptized in the waters of that baptistry. And one of them, my mother, Beverly, would marry her husband, Craig, in that church. And it was in part in that church and through its ministry that they came to hear God calling them to a life 
of service and ministry. For it was that church where the people of the community, they shared together in hard years. And they came together for Thanksgiving meals. And they gathered together for celebration or grief. And they faithfully brought their gifts together to be shared with those who had need. It was the church where as children we would visit and we would sit in the same balcony row my grandparents occupied for so many years of their life, proud as we were introduced as the Proctor's grandkids. And in 2017, it was that church where after my grandfather's funeral and graveside service, we joined together for a meal. People of the church spreading out the comfort food in the downstairs fellowship hall. And gathered there were all eight of us grandkids and many of our families. And as it happens to a person, every one of us calls ourselves a follower of Jesus, committed to a life of faith and faithful in a ministry of a church. I remember walking from that meal upstairs into the empty sanctuary and I was just overwhelmed as I sat there in the middle of it. How much of life can be held and contained in the blessings we share in a community of faith. And then it was back downstairs, and I was thanking all of those church members who prepared that bereavement meal for my grandfather's funeral. They, they kept saying to me, though, it was a pleasure. They said it was a pleasure to give something little in honor of a man who had given so much over the course of his life to the ministry of that church. And sometimes we do get to see it. What happens when we give? What grows from generosity? What, when sown generously, is reaped abundantly? And you know, maybe it's just the holidays. And maybe I'm particularly sentimental but I can't help but hear somewhere behind it in my story. Words of a 19-year-old in a letter home all those years ago. Make sure the church gets the $20 that I sent for my offering. And thanks be to God. Amen.